Good morning, church. Good to see everyone here. Um, we are in Romans chapter 12, so uh, get there and we'll uh, start our time together. Kind of the second, like last paragraph of Romans chapter 12. We're in the middle of Paul kind of line listing for us the look of love for a Christian. The reality that um, because of all that God has done for us, from opening blind eyes to, to granting a righteousness not of our own, to adopting us as sons and daughters, to making certain that nothing can separate us from his love and nothing will come against us in condemnation. That, that wonderful picture, Paul says, in view of that story, go live um, these sacrificial lives. And he talks about, in, in verses 9 through uh, 13, real specific ways in which we ought to love God and love other people to care for, for the things that God cares for, to be passionate, to be a praying people, a hospitable people, to be a generous people, to be a people of joy and hope, and, and, and all those types of things. The context of that section was really, really, in essence, how do we love others and how do we love God most of all? Uh, ver- verses 14 through 21, Paul, I, I think, changes the channel just a little bit to, to introduce another subject of love and specifically loving those people who persecute us. Uh, radically different. So I want to just read these few verses and uh, we'll see what God has to say. Start, starting in verse uh, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And never be wise in your own sight. Now I think that... Uh, Some of these things are going to be a challenge for us. They're a challenge for me, so I want to ask for God's uh, help in this. So let's pray together. God, I thank you that your spirit never lets up in our life, that it confronts, your word confronts and convicts and encourages us. I pray these things that are the result of love that you have given to us, um, that through the power of the spirit we'd be able to return in, in like kind. I pray for the help in this message and for hearers to hear, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just confess something to you right off the bat. Uh, verse 14, to bless those who persecute you, I stink at verse 14. I do. Um, my dad uh, always said that I was made for war and, uh, because I, I, I just I enjoy conflict. Isn't that sick? That's a sick confession. Don't hold it against me. I blame it on my mother, really, because um, <laughs> my mother's a scrapper. She's a fighter, and I think I, I, I got it from, from her. I hope she's not listening to this, but I love her. Um, nevertheless, um, I don't think I'm alone. Like, if, if we're going to be honest about bless those who persecute you, if I, I suppose um, if we all just took a lie detector test on who really does this instinctively, most of us would fail. In fact, I thought about this on Thursday. Who do I know tangibly who excels at this? I couldn't come up with a name. I mean, other than biblical examples, I, I didn't have a person I looked at and said, oh, my gosh, those, that's the picture right there. So I'm just going to start with the premise that there's a potential that most of us would struggle in the category of blessing people who make life hard for us. And yet that's where Paul's going in, lieu of, in view of the gospel, okay? Before we get into the specifics of what Paul is calling the church to do, let, let's take a minute and, and spend it on the context, okay? It's the fourth word in verse 4, bless those who persecute. To those who persecute, this is not the person who has a bad day, who says something stupid, who uh, 
just, just has a moment in time where they come across poorly to you or do something harmful to you. This word persecute is the idea of repeated acts of enmity. This means these people over and over and over again make you the target of harm, okay? So that changes the perspective a little bit. In fact, this is how Jesus said the world would react to the church specifically with these repeated acts of enmity. This is what he says in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of a world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will, will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Chapter 16 of John. I have said all these things to you to keep it from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, now this next phrase is so prophetic. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they were offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's the, that's the promise from Jesus. For the church who loves him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, why are we hated? Because I look at you folks and you're a very attractive group of people. You seem nice and pleasant. Um, why would anybody hate you? Jesus says three things in this John passage. The first thing is because we identify with Jesus. Jesus is the problem, right? That's what he says here, on account of my name. The scriptures are really, really clear that the war, there's a cosmic conflict that exists between heaven and earth. There's a fight between God and man. It always has been. And the turf that we're fighting over is lordship and control and truth. That's where we started this Roman study. We want to be our own God. We want to be in charge of things. We want it to go our way. And so there's always been this war going on. There is anger and denial and fight for, for truth. So it goes just like this in the sequence that Jesus lays out for us. The world hates God because it wants to be its own God. It hates Jesus because Jesus is God. And they can't get their arms around Jesus, so they hate his people. Make sense? A very simple line here that Jesus promises on account of me. Look at the second thing he says, that Jesus said that they'll hate us because we don't belong to the world. He said that in chapter 15. Now, I know you know this already, but one of the outcomes of the fall and sin was that uh, we tend to dislike people that aren't like us. Sin is the explanation for racism. Sin is the explanation for generations that don't get along, and there's discord there. Sin is the, the, the explanation for cultural disunity, right? So rich, poor, cool, uncool, you just name it. The, the reasons why there's divisions is because of, of sin, all right? And if that's true, to sinners towards sinners, just think how much more true it is for sinners towards those who claim Jesus. You stick out like a sore thumb. And, by the way, you're the rain on their parade, Every time you kind of even just exist in an environment, there's an authority because of what you claim to believe. And you can't celebrate what they celebrate, and that cramps their style. We, we saw this in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Paul kind of lays this thought out for us when he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, this is the key phrase. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world applauds sin. Believers don't. This is not your home. This is not your world. And so when you live for the kingdom and, his, and God's glory, you're going to be, a, be a, a kind of a hindrance to their freedoms, right? You're not, a, you're not a part of this world. One last thing Jesus said in that John passage is that, that the reason why the world hates believers is because God chose us out of the world. Let me just be blunt. One of the, if not the most offensive things the world um, hates is the sovereignty of God. Absolutely hate it. it. It is the gospel story what drives them nuts. The gospel story that says that God is the one who accomplishes salvation by his power and by his sovereign decision. Period. Hate that story. And what it says out loud um, to those who don't believe is that you've got some serious problems with sin and you have a complete and total inability to fix your own problem. And what the reality of the world thinks is that there's some, at least some small corner in the heart of every person that just given a great opportunity and perfect circumstances would make a right and good decision. Would, be a, would it be a help to their own problem? And that's not the gospel. The gospel starts at the bottom. All men, all women, all people of all time are incapable of pleasing God. The gospel starts there, and that's what makes it so beautiful, because in spite of our inability, God comes on a rescue mission with Jesus by faith, and we are free and a righteous people. And Jesus said really clearly, because I chose you out of the world, they're going to they're gonna hate that story. They're going to hate the gospel, how it totally crushes the human heart and doesn't pick it up and doesn't make them feel better about themselves. There's lots of reasons why the, the world will reject us, but verse 14, if we're just being honest, for me, it's been very hard um, to contextualize at first glance what verse 14 really says to a church in Gilbert, Arizona, 2014, right? Persecution. How? In the heck does the American church suffer? Because if you're like me, you think the word per persecution and you think ISIS, Middle East, losing your head, right? And I know that's not based on faith necessarily, their perspective it is, but, but maybe you think, oh, that, that's what it means to suffer or to be persecuted. And, and it is, it's an extreme case of that. But I've got a couple considerations for you that... Uh, Help us understand maybe persecution in our context. There's a possibility that God just isn't allowing that type of persecution on us. Like maybe God just put like a, like a hedge of protection around us and said, not, not now, not them. Possible, right? Possible that God's just kind of providing a shelter for us. There's a, there's a possibility that our lives, the way we live our lives, wouldn't provoke a persecution at all. Like we just don't live that different. You know, the, the contrasts compare between light and darkness that were so kind of gray that the, church, that the world doesn't see the church any different. And so we wouldn't provoke a reaction like persecution because you're just like us. I'm not saying that's true, but there's a possibility, and I think it's probably a fair um, accusation for some that we're so, we've so blurred the line of what it is to walk with Christ that there isn't any difference. But I want to help shape your thinking. I do think there's a form of persecution that happens, can happen, probably will happen in a believer's life if they choose to live godly. And I don't want you to think the extreme version of maybe losing your life for claiming Christ. There's, 
There are lots of things the scriptures say about those who suffer the ridicule of naming Christ. That happens in our world. You know, it may, maybe this is, uh, makes you feel weak just to say it, but there are those of you who are being made fun of for naming Jesus. You know, you're in the office and you say something about what the word says or, or what God thinks about something and suddenly they think you're an idiot. You've got a crutch and you're not smart enough. Six days, really? And, and you get that kind of look. And so there's ridicule for, for naming Christ. You, um, maybe, maybe possibly you're marginalized for your faith. You know, there's great conversations, especially now in our culture, in our day and age of the world and its problems and solutions and everything else. And so most people dive into a conversation about either what they think is wrong or what they think might be a solution or how we should feel about those things. But as soon as you come from a biblical Christian perspective, many years ago, I went into a uh, guitar store. I do this a lot because I like to play guitar. And I went into a guitar store, and there were two extremely, extremely burnt out people working at this guitar store. <laughs> Nevertheless, we were chatting about things, and it was back in the Clinton thing, you know, the Monica Lewinsky kind of problem stuff. And they were debating what all that meant. And out of the blue, and I'm just looking at guitars, they go, hey, man, what do you think? So I started talking about, well, it seems to me that... Uh, it makes no sense to talk about what they're doing unless there's some kind of absolute truth to this, right? If everybody can do what's right in their own eyes, what difference does it make? But if there's some absolute, then that's worth talking about. What do you mean, man? And, and uh, so we talked, I talked about God being authority. As soon as G came out of my mouth, shut it down, marginalized, you're one of those, you're done. There's a possibility that uh, some of you have experienced real true hatred for naming Christ. You know, the classic place we see it in the church is where there's a division in the home. Maybe there's a husband and wife that aren't spiritually in the same place. There's a wife who loves Jesus and a husband who doesn't. And for the, for the wife to live for Christ, it just drives the husband nuts and he hates everything about it. And they war like crazy and life is miserable. If you're a parent and there's nothing more a parent wants than their kids to come to know Christ, but you have these kids that are just absolute knuckleheads and they hate everything that you try to do for their good because they think that Jesus is cramping their fun, Right? And so you live trying to wrestle with the, with the commands of Scripture to parent your child in an honorable way, teach them in the ways of the Lord, and yet they go, no, nah, keep that lie to yourself. There's lots of ways, I think, real, real practical, maybe not the gory ways, but ways in which here in 2014 in Gilbert, Arizona, we might suffer the persecution. But the promise was clear to Paul to the young pastor, Timothy, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Not like maybe, not like if, and I think those two concepts go together. Desiring to live godly means you'll stick out so much that you will be shot at. Not, not with a gun, but with ridicule possibly, with anger possibly, with marginalization possibly. So here we have in this, this eight verse section from verses 21, uh, 20, 14 to 21, Paul gets real specific on this command, Okay. We're going to deal with the first three verses uh, this morning. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Jesus basically said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, where he said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's exactly what it means to bless. This is the heart of Christ. 
and how we live based on the gospel in us. So Paul says to bless those who persecute you. The word bless means to speak well of. I'm not suggesting that you lie to speak well of. This is not make up stories about your persecutor, that they're really great people and they're really gentle and they're very kind. You don't have to lie. It's what your mother told you a long time ago. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's what it means to speak well of someone. Don't contribute to their reputation by conversation. It means to pray for them. It means doing good for them. This is so not natural. Is it? This doesn't happen in me. In fact, doesn't it seem wrong? Doesn't it seem wrong to let people who are evil get away with it? That seems stupid. And by the way, if you just let them, like let them get away with it, if you don't make justice happen right now yourself, won't they just repeat the behavior? That happens a lot. People just constantly continue their repetition. So here's what we do. And I think the word that Paul uses to describe here in the negative form, do not curse them, it's there because that's what we do. That's the tendency that we have. And I'm not talking about verbal cursing, although we're probably pretty good good at that. I'm not saying verbalize harm. I'm saying that you spend your time wishing ruin on someone. I I I hope they get what they deserve. Many, many years ago, I had an adversary. And I would put him in the uh, persecutor category. And because I was made to war, I could handle a whole bunch of tension. And so I spent years just like wishing for his demise. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm very creative, so this was bad. Um, And I sat in a service just like you're sitting in many, many years ago. And someone started talking about forgiveness received. And I was crushed. Like, I was crushed. I, I couldn't walk out of the service without crying. And so I got home, and I go, okay, this means something. So I picked up the phone, and I dialed the number, you know. And I called this guy, and I said, hey, man, I just want you to know I've spent years just being really bitter, really angry at you. And he said to me, <laughs> he said to me, good. Glad you came to your senses. Yeah, yeah. So I started thinking of creative ways to do harm to him all over again. <laughs> Like, how can I bring about his demise? Like, God rained down heaven on him, right? It didn't make it easy whatsoever, but that's, that's the, the look of what it is to, to curse someone. Blessing a persecutor isn't natural, and let's be honest. That's really the point, isn't it? Blessing the persecutor is supernatural. That's why it comes in view of the gospel, The only possible way that we can extend love to those who want to harm is through the love we've received from Jesus. That's the only possible way in view of the mercies of God. So here's a question for you, church. How do you show love most clearly? I'll give you the answer. When you extend it to people who deserve it the least. It's no different than when we talk about faith Faith that we get is a gift from God that we grow in until eternity. Faith is grown. Now, get this. It grows in trial. Like, we, we could have the best day of the best week of the best month of our entire life. We could have the greatest uh, time in our devotions and everything else. But here's what the scripture promises. It's in the weight of trials that God kind of reveals and grows his people. Faith is seen in the trial, just just like love is seen when it's extended to people who really don't deserve it. 
whatsoever. That's when you know it's really love. If you just love those who love you, what, what good is that? So the examples that are clear are Jesus on the cross, right? He's being killed for loving. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're into. Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Stephen is uh, simply preaching the gospel. And he, and he confronts the religious leaders who think that there's something they can offer. And so they take out stones and they start to kill him by throwing rocks at his head. And his comment in that like last moments of his life was, don't hold this sin against them. And by the way, just a, just a good tip. That's exactly what it and look at the outcome of even Stephen's prayer. The antagonist in his murder was Paul. He said, don't hold a sin against them. Paul gets converted, and we, are, we have Romans. We have 75% of the New Testament because God honored that prayer to bless some persecutor. So it's worth it, right? Just a side note. So, so let me give you kind of handlebars to understand this, this text. Just like we said in verse 9, that the subject matter of what it is to have genuine, authentic love, and those next three verses the way Paul laid out for us what a genuine, authentic love looked like. Well, here we have in verse 14 the idea of blessing those who persecute, and everything to follow is the details on how to do that. Make sense? So we have genuine love lived out. We have blessing lived out. Here's the first thing that Paul says in verse 15 of how to bless those who persecute you. He says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's the idea of feeling someone else's feelings, getting in their shoes. A couple of years ago, um, there was a gentleman who went to our church who worked for Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A does customer service really, really well. And we were working on guest services here. And he handed me this video and said, watch this, it might help. And so the video was simply just a camera in one of the restaurants, you know, at the counter or sitting down at the table, and, and they would hover in on a person, and there would be this bubble over their head, and it would tell their story. Like there would be a, just found out he has terminal cancer, or just found out I'm going to be a daddy, or struggling to make the payments, right? And so the, the point of the video was, like, everyone has a story. And if you slow down long enough to just think that way, you would actually get in their shoes and feel what they feel, and therefore, in their mind you'd be a better servant selling chicken sandwiches. Which is great, by the way, but that's a great way to think about how we feel other people's feelings. Everyone's got a story. Everybody's got a burden. Everybody's got something they're celebrating, and that's what he says in this passage. Rejoice with everyone who's rejoicing and weep with those who weep. The, the, the phrase that I would use is empathy. There's an old Swedish proverb that explains it perfectly. It says shared joy is double joy. You ever heard this before? Shared joy is double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. It's true, isn't it? If someone is having the greatest day of their life and you get into celebrate, it just gets even bigger. And if someone's carrying a burden and you get in to carry it, it gets lighter. And that's exactly the theme of what Paul is saying here. When we bless the world is to feel what they feel, get involved with them. But let's just be honest, okay? That is a cute little proverb but it's not easy. And, and here's, here's why. What do we do when someone starts telling us about their pain and suffering? Classic human is to show them our scars. Oh, really? That's pain? Let me, let me show you my pain. 
like that suffering, I've been through it too. And so we start to compare and, and contrast what we've gone through, what we're going through to theirs. We don't just simply feel. We want to win. That happens, right? And, and by the way, if we're talking specifically about targeting towards those who per- persecute us, if they're suffering, we're going, yeah, you should suffer. I'm glad you're suffering. It should hurt because you're a jerk. <laughs> and, and, and that's how we view this whole perspective. But then there's this aspect of rejoicing. And that sounds like it'd be easier, but not really. So when you have your, you know, coworker come running up to you and say, hey, you know that job we were both going for? I got the promotion. And you go, good for you. I'm so happy. <laughs> or your friend comes to tell you that they're pregnant and you know you can't have kids. You're having the hardest time celebrating what they're celebrating. Because that stuff is in us. And it's almost impossible with a friend. Can you imagine now turning this attention towards a persecutor? This, this is a big deal. The point that I'm trying to make here is what Paul is saying here for believers, those who refuse to, to uh, feel someone's pain or to cheer someone's successes is sin because what motivates us at that moment is either envy or uh, jealousy or judgmentalness or a hard-heartedness. I mean, you just keep going. The problem is that's, that's wrong, right? That's sin, church. For us to hold back from feeling and giving in those moments is because somehow we're jealous or angry that God's doing that for them. So it's a big problem. Paul says to bless your enemies with empathy. Here's the second thing he says in verse 16, my paraphrase, be easy to get along with. He uses this phrase, live in harmony. Live in harmony. Now Paul's not talking about uh, peace here. He's going to get to the subject of peace in verse 18. This is simply Paul talking about don't make sparks, don't cause trouble. Don't war. So, so um, this is what this looks like. It's, you know, you get in one of those debates about truth and you're fighting to win the argument because you're desperate to be right. It's being harsh in your words and not loving in your words. It is uh, being critical and choosing to, to pick every hill to die on versus strategic and what hills matter. It's just being a, a warrior, a fighter. And... Uh, I, I've, I've witnessed this, so let's just talk about it. I think there are people who seem to live here. The, these are people who are upset. They're always upset. They're looking to get upset, and they're okay with letting everybody know that they're upset. And I'm telling you, the biblical cause is really easy to see. It's pride. It's pride. Let me, let me tell you two like common mistakes people make when they earn the reputation of not getting along with others. One is they think too highly of their own opinions, okay? So it's like a proverbial truth. Um, There is a way that seems right to a man until another argues his way. So we hear what we hear and we feel what we feel and that's as far as the line's going and so I'm right. And so arrogance puts us in a position of judgment towards whatever discussion we're in or the person we're dealing with. Or or the possibility that um, people keep files on each other. Grumpy people do this, you know. It's, we bump into each other. We sin against each other. The Bible has things to say about how we fix those things. Forgiveness would be a word. Um, but here's what these people do who like to war. They, they keep a file, not a real one, but like this, this 
fictitious one that has all the offenses clearly laid out, all the dates, all the feelings that were felt. And when they go to view someone or deal with some situation, they pull from that file and that's the lens they look through. Both of those are reasons why people stay at war with others. They think too much of their own opinion and they keep long files and they don't forgive, which is the call of scripture. So Paul says, you want to bless those who persecute you? I understand you have every right, you like naturally, to keep notes on the people who wound you. Don't. Just, just don't. Try viewing them through the lens of forgiveness you've received. Try that. Remember where you were outside of the kingdom of God before Jesus changed your life. And humble yourself. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So, two things he said so far, verse 15, the beginning of verse 16, um, feel their feelings or have empathy and then be easy to get along with. Here's the third thing Paul says to do to bless them. Verse 16, um, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. My paraphrase, remember that you're nothing special. Sounds un-American, doesn't it? I had a guy confront me at the eight o'clock service that was convinced that thinking low of yourself was not what God wanted and so I'm not certain I convinced him, but here's my point. This is what Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, dealing with our calling and our ministry and our service and what God uses to accomplish his ends. Watch this. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God loves to take things that are unimpressive and do great things with them. And Paul's encouraging um, the church to not get big-headed or think of themselves more special than they should. So... Let, let me just pretend for a second that everybody in this room has journeyed with us through the first 11 chapters of Romans. How is it possible after all of that gospel that a believer could actually think there's something special? I don't know. I was just in getting in ministry some 30 years ago and uh, I was probably 24, 25, and there was a guy in our church who was 10 years older than me. By that time, was already, when I say multi, 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 multi-millionaire, that's what he was. And I was doing some project at his house, something, I was fixing something, and he came out to talk to me, but he would never look me in the eye, and he walked around his castle, and it was a castle, saying, you know, Tim, I never have to work another day in my life. And, and his chest was pretty, pretty out there. And, and I, I, that came to mind when I thought of this. How could any believer, in view of the gospel, that we are so broken and so twisted and so at war with God, ever think of themselves like we're special? If you want a cure to that, if that happens in your life, I'm going to give you a little sentence to say to yourself all day, every day. Just say out loud, out loud, you're a sinner saved by grace and nothing more. That's what we are. And so God can take the foolish things to shame the wise, and he can take the things that aren't powerful to do powerful things. He gets the glory. Nobody's going to be confused on who's doing what here. You and I really are nothing that special. You understand? You are loved as much as an infinite God can love you, but you're not really that important, sorry to say. 
and you're replaceable. And I think that's a good thing to remember as, as children of the king. Now, Psalm 139, it's true. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, we are created in the image of God. We all have worth. Even the unbelievers who don't recognize that truth have that worth. But we as Christians, walk, we walk humbly. Like Paul said, even after the gospel, right? I'm the worst of all. It's me. I'm the, I'm the one who needs the gospel. And so, so here's what Paul says to a church that's suffering persecution. Get down. Because you're going to think you deserve better. And you're going to think you matter, and you have the wisdom, and you're, it's unfair, and you're special. And that's not, that's not true whatsoever. So bless our enemies by empathy and by getting, being easy to get along with and remembering that we're nothing special. Here's the last thing, by being humble. The phrase that he uses at the end of verse 16 is, never be wise in your own eyes. It's kind of where we started in verse 3 in Paul's mind. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but with sober judgment. That's over and over and over again, Paul's perspective in view of God's grace to sinners. Two weeks ago, I think Paul mentioned it during communion. Two weeks ago, we took the entire staff on a retreat. We did a night and a day. And a lot of times when you go away at these things, they're very strategic. You know, they're about uh, vision or plans or correction or whatever. I really had only one agenda, and that was a devotional moment. And the devotional moment that I felt convicted by was the idea of this topic of humility. And not only because it's the besetting sin of every human I've ever met, but church, and I use the big C church to describe this, um, right now has a horrendous reputation, in my opinion, for being um, arrogant. And, and trying to extend their influence and grow their brand and not walk humbly before the Lord. And I know me, so this is a confession. I'm capable of everything. And it scares me. And so many years ago, I started praying, God, keep me small. And so we kind of created this mantra that we use at staff. Here's what we do. We fight for obscurity. Because Jesus is the point of this story. And man, my heart wants to be known and, be, and matter, and we want to matter, and we want to look back and say we accomplished something, but what we need to strive for is being small and washing feet and caring for the needs of the lowly. And, and the fact that we could die and nobody cares that we were there is great because now it won't be at all confusing who gets the glory from this. It's all him. I shared with the staff that day what I consider to be the scariest, happiest phrase I've ever read in the scripture. James chapter 4, verse 6. This is a scary phrase. God opposes the proud. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but are you proud? I'm just going to take that as a yes. I'm proud. And it terrifies me that God would oppose me or stand in our way. You know, what would it be like if God would um, simply frustrate everything we plan to do? Like, we could have meetings all day long, and we could write great notes and have big schematics and try to accomplish so many things. But what if God just said, mm, it's not going to work, none of it. You'll just be spinning your wheels. Nothing's going to be successful. God could do that. He could oppose the proud if we think that our systems and our, our ideas and our work are really what accomplishes things like that. What if it was that God just let us have what we wanted. 
Romans, Paul says this over and over again, that one of the consequences of God to sinners who won't repent of their sin was to just give you what you want. What, what if we wanted to do this whole thing without him? Now, we would never articulate that, but what if we lived in such a way that we, we just really felt like we had it wired and we didn't need his help? And he said, okay, there you go. That would be terrible. What, what if God just said, okay, I'm going to remove the hedge of protection. Like, here's what happens a lot in church, and I hope, I hope not to disappoint you too much. We don't know everything, okay? We don't always do everything right. We mean well, I can, I can say that, but how many mistakes do I make a day? How many mistakes do you make a day? And yet, and yet, in spite of my stupidity, God still gets me somewhere close. Like, he works it out that way. What, what if God said, no, not, not anymore, because you're arrogant, um, because of that attitude, all the protection is gone, I'm going to expose you. What, what if God um, decided to go someplace else to bless what, what if he said, you know that small, insignificant, nobody knows it, uh, knows about it ministry, that group of people just slugging it out with no money and no influence whatsoever, I'm going there. I'm going to hang out with the low people. And he said to this church, who has so much and gets it delivered in so many great ways, he said, no, I'm out of here. What if he decided to shame us? This would be Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, right? I'm, look at me, am I great? And better get used to the taste of grass as soon as you say that because what if he shamed us? What if he exposed us for what we really are? All I know is when I read God opposes the proud, I don't want to be that guy. But I love this second phrase. This second phrase is the happiest phrase I've ever seen. But God gives grace to the humble. Grace, I'm not tired of talking about it, greatest word I've ever heard. God gives grace to broken, needy, poor people. It is the words of Christ in the very first sermon he ever gave, the very first sentence out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor people get Jesus. Not physically poor, people who bankrupt in their soul, who understands what they are without Christ. And just so you know, we aren't just saved by being poor in spirit. We live poor in spirit. We never, ever get out of that mode. We walk every day knowing we have nothing to offer God apart from what he gives us. So we live small, intentionally. We realize the fact that however much we might know, we don't know everything. As much as we think we've accomplished, we realize that we're just one of the many somebody else could have done it to. Small. We think small. I read this, this passage to the staff, too. I love this. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you might build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I love that picture. So I, I've always kind of pictured God like in a, in a physical sense this way in this passage. God made everything. And everything he made is awesome. And it's almost as if God and his eyes are looking through the earth and all these wonderful, beautiful things where he could stop and be impressed. He isn't. He doesn't stop there. Where he stops and hovers. Where he notices. 
broken people. He just simply gazes at the brokenness and the, the, the uh, crippledness and the inability of a person. And he says, that's the one I esteem. I want to be there, right? So let me, um, let me give you something to do. You want homework? Because I think this passage is hard enough. Um, but I want to give you some things to remember. The only way to bless those who persecute you is to remember your blessing. You were once at war with God. You in your sin were at war with him. And the only way for us to possibly bless those who persecute us is see ourselves as the recipient of God's blessing in spite of our persecution of our Savior. Do you understand? Everything we did in our life before Christ was an attempt to persecute Jesus, to live as authority in my own life, to live as my own Savior, to mock his word. And he opens my eyes and gives me a new heart, and I can't help myself but to extend the blessing I've received. That's why we do this. Amen? One last thing. The only way you're going to be able to uh, bless those who persecute you is actually do it. It's not a theory. So, so I'm going to try to use my story 30 years ago. When I said to you to bless those who persecute you, who came to mind? Because I was sitting in a pew a long, long time ago, and I couldn't escape the person. I couldn't escape the fact that there was a person that I could not stand who made my life miserable. Who is that person? Is it a husband? Is it a wife? Is it a kid? Coworker? Neighbor? Who's the person who is the persecutor in your life? Real simple. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for yourself and your heart. Um, seek to do them good. And just tell yourself no more excuses. No more excuses. Because the scriptures are clear. Not to those who make it easy, but to those who persecute, which is an ongoing, repeated enmity and strife. Now, this is possible through the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray for that help. God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you that we can trust that the work that he started, he will finish. And I pray that it is refined and precise as to deal with our enemies, for those who persecute us. God, I pray for us. God, I pray that we can uh, seek their good and speak well of them. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be a warring people. I pray, God, that we would see ourselves as... as uh, who uh, we really are, sinners saved by grace. I pray, God, that we would live small, so small that what happens is that uh, this persecuting world is blessed. God, we can, uh, we can see this happen by your power, so therefore you will get the glory. We pray this in Christ's name.